0: you were wondering where uh, Delray Church uh, is dispersed throughout the the, uh, the room tonight, you heard them giggle when PJ said 25 minutes. <laughs> Those were all the Delray people. Um, and Pastor Kidd and I will do our best to save you, PJ, five minutes, because uh, he and I were like, how are we going to pull this off? I have no idea. Anyway, I'm going to jump right into it, because I, I have way more than 20 minutes to talk to you guys tonight. Um, the... The, the theme here is worship, word, and witness. Uh, you have three pastors, and we're each going to tackle uh, each of those words, uh, worship, word, and witness. Uh, so my job is to talk to you about the first part and set the stage for um, the next two brothers as they speak to us about this, and we ground that around Reformation. Um, I'm I'm not going to be giving a traditional sermon uh, where I'm expositing a text of Scripture. We did that this morning at church. I'm going to sketch some history for you. Uh, That said, uh, we are God's people, and I always like an excuse to pray. So it's not a sermon sermon, but can we bow our heads and our hearts and just pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this night. Thank you uh, for this church. We, We speak a blessing over this place and the pastors here and those who uh, have served to prepare this evening. Uh, Father, bless us. Bless my brothers as they come up and they speak. Bless our ears, that they would hear our eyes, that they would see our minds, that they would be filled with uh, the knowledge of your, your people and your sovereign hand at work in history. We pray that you would give us um, a willingness to, to, to move from this place in continuance of the Reformation that you are a God who is redeeming and reforming uh, from among the nations. And so we bless you this night. In the mighty, matchless, majestic, most high, precious, beautiful name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. So I want to talk to you, brothers and sisters, about worship, and and I want to talk to you about church. I want to talk to you about the worship of the Church of Jesus Christ. And I want to start by highlighting for you the history of worship and the revival of worship in the Reformation of our church in modern history in the Protestant movement. It's important for me to do this. I did this this morning in my church because while we're celebrating the 500th anniversary, it's important for us to understand that this thing that we're celebrating is a lot older than 500 years. It's been going on for quite some time. Um, And so, so often... Uh, you'll find interlocutors of things, uh, Reformed and Protestant, uh, they'll say, well, we're sort of the Johnny-come-latelys. You guys have only been around for 500 years. We've been around for 2,000. My Catholic friends will say that. Uh, to which I say, oh, no, we've, we've been at this for quite some time, and um, I'll let you have that word Catholic for now, but I don't think that's yours. So anyway, let's study some history. Let's talk about what worship is. Uh, what is worship? Well, very simply, worship is just ascribing worth. Uh, When you give worth to a something or value to a something, that that is what we call worship. The word worship is derived from an old English word that simply means to honor, to give honor to an object. It has been etymologized as worthiness or worthship. Very simply, when you're just noting that something is is special, uh, we call that worthship. Worship is a central focus of the Christian faith, one of the most distinctive activities of the Church of Jesus Christ, who we ascribe our worth to Christ as Lord and Savior and supreme treasure. Uh, We've looked at this English word uh, behind me, but how about the more ancient biblical terms, proskunuo in the Greek, Shachach in the Hebrew, which literally just means to bow down. If you think of of bowing down before something, this is what we are doing in worship. We're giving ourselves to to that which we bow before. Such was the ancient gesture and the honor of, of bowing oneself before a sovereign. That is a superior authority where you offer one's allegiance and one's faith and one's trust in submitting to another, uh, the other uh, being a lord over that you bow before it's about obedience and love fundamentally and it's, it's it's expressed through a passionate and a joyful a ritual in life and life in community that is we are to worship brothers and sisters God together in obedience joy love truth and we express this rightly together when we gather in things like song and prayer and having communion and hearing God's word read aloud etc to, to make sure that our ritual and our gathering is true and obedient and loving, we must turn to Scripture. The worship of the early church that we read about in the New Testament was closely tied to and it developed from Scripture. It developed specifically out of the life of the Jewish context in the Jewish synagogue, which were these community centers of learning and places where the scriptures would be accessed, where people would fellowship, where they would pray, where life would be lived. They had elders in the synagogues. The word synagogue, synagogue, it literally just means a gathering in the same way that the New Testament term ecclesia for church just means gathering. In the New Testament, we see Jesus in the synagogues and his public teaching ministry. He teaches in them. His disciples also teach in them, belong to them, meet in them. The church's structure is modeled After the synagogue, beyond synagogue gatherings, the church would meet on Sundays to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus, to share in communion meals, to learn the apostles' teachings through the elders who were charged with preaching and teaching and shepherding their respective local congregations throughout the world. The people would gather and they would worship, that is, ascribe worth to God together. The corporate gathering of the church, modeled after synagogues, was much like our churches today. They sang together, they prayed, they offered vocal thanksgiving, they listened to instruction. They had mikvot, or what we call baptisms. They had public professions of faith where believers would be immersed in water and received into the community. They had messianic fellowship meals. Their most precious meal, of course, was the Lord's Supper, which Jesus himself instituted as a reenactment of the Jewish Passover celebration to teach families to Disciples, outsiders, insiders, the whole community of his work as the sacrificial lamb and the sanctifying Lord in that Jewish context. You read all about this in the New Testament. Outside of the Bible, we have these ancient Jewish sources that describe the Jewish rootedness of the church as a worshiping community of Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. These sources include, but they are not limited to, the Didache. Pliny the Younger's letter, the letters of Ignatius, Justin Martyr's apology, the apostolic tradition, which is traditionally attributed to Hippolytus. Going back to my statement, the redemption of God and the redeeming work that he does in reforming his people has been going on for quite some time. So rather than beginning with Luther 500 years ago, I've taken you to the first century and I... Don't know how we're going to do this in 20 minutes. But the Didache, the teaching of the apostles, it's a manual of church order used in the first century. You can read about it and see the worship of the people. The letter of Pliny the Younger, it's, a, it's written by a non-believer, interestingly enough, Pliny or Gaius Plinius. He's a Roman administrator under the emperor Trajan who reports on Christian worship. And he writes as an outsider about what we do as insiders. And as you read his letters, you go, hey, 2,000 years later, we're still doing that. How about that? The First of Justin the Martyr. He defends the Christian faith against tax on legal and moral grounds, and he writes about baptism, Sunday gatherings, the Lord's Supper, prayer, teaching, scripture, taking offerings, reading the memoirs of the apostles, which is likely a reference to the the four canonical gospels, the writings of the prophets, all stuff we do. The apostolic tradition of Hippolytus. It's a manual of church order that dates back into the first centuries of the church. It describes these same things. Elders, pastors, gatherers, Gatherings, prayers, offerings, baptism, communion, Trinitarian language, confession, worship, corporate worship. You see, the early church had this. They modeled their life after this first century Jewish context. They modeled it after the synagogue. The synagogue. When you go to Israel, you'll see dug in, in, into the sands of time. You can visit the archaeological sites. You can go to the museums. And you'll see the ancient churches and synagogues. You'll see how they're structured the same. You see how the people gathered. And there was a pulpit just like this in the middle where they would teach. It's there for you to see in museums, first century, second century, third century. People were gathered. Gathering, like you are, watching someone stand in front of you and talk about God and God's word. In time, however, these things were corrupted. A Particular corruption begins to occur in church history as the church fell into the sin of anti-Semitism. And much of this revolved around the Roman Empire's anti-Semitic campaign against Jewish people. They toppled the temple. They exiled the Jewish people from the land. As a result, many churches were literally ripped apart. When you read in the New Testament about about these Jew and Gentile issues, you could see how those were exasperated by the anti-Semitic regime of Rome. So then this creeps into the church, anti-Semitism, ethnic tension in the early church. Aren't we glad we got over that? <laughs> right? It's still going. St. Augustine, in his famous book, Confessions, he wrote, How hateful are to me the enemies of your scripture, how I wish that they would slay the Jews and with your two-edged sword so that none of them should oppose your word gladly. I would have that I would die to them and live to you. Wow, that's, that sounds Christian. Um, the church father, John Christostom, he wrote in his discourse against the Jews, if the title doesn't say it all, right? Christostom insisted Jews are dogs, stiff necked, gluttonous, drunkards, um, beasts unfit for work. The Jews had fallen into a condition lower than the vilest of animals. The synagogue is the wor- is worse than a brothel and a drinking shop. It is the den of scoundrels, a temple of demons, a cavern of devils. My mom would wash my mouth out with soap talking like that. That's crazy. He says it is the duty of Christians to hate Jews. So you see the early church gets corrupted by uh, racism. And as you begin to erode the Jewish context of the church, you're worshiping a Jewish Messiah and you're reading Jewish scriptures. So the structures then that are woven into that Jewish context get corrupted. As a result, the church begins getting corrupted. There isn't time for me to survey all of the anti-Semitism and the the corruption of Jewish Uh, 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 the Jewish context of of Jesus and the Messianic church in Jerusalem. But it is a strange historical twist to see the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish disciples, who labored in synagogues and built churches for Gentiles around the world. And without that Jewish community, uh, it is no wonder the fathers began reading things out of context and developing strange ecclesiologies of replacement, or as they would call it today, fulfillment. And worse, they start adding superstition, sacramentalism, sacerdotalism, sin, the things of and Rome start creeping into the church. Things were particularly bad for churches in West Europe. It is a complex history, but the Roman Empire exiled and executed Jews, and this caused this loss. As well, the church became politicized in the West and married to the state. Aren't we glad that the church and politics aren't a mess anymore? to tomb, right? Warring states, lands, lords, they corrupt the church, thirsty for bloodshed, gold, space, power. In the West, the church has become institutionalized. On the heels of the fallen Roman Empire, politicians and warlords, er warlords erected a Roman church who claimed to own the churches of Europe in a clutch for power, These churches sent money to the headquarters, and they used various leaders throughout the lands with said money for erecting nationalist monuments to display their power. Raising up among the leaders was one who claimed to be the head, who claimed to be the pontificus maximus, the pope. Pope is a secular title. It is one of the highest offices in the state religion of the ancient pagan Roman Empire. This pagan title was the least of the problem, however. It was the pagan thought that was corrupting the European churches. In spite of the paganism and sinfulness and the hatred of of, of, of the people towards God's people, uh, God was faithful, and God raised up a movement that, that climaxes 500 years ago that we celebrate. But tonight, again, we gather to celebrate something 500 years ago, but that Said it's important that we realize things were unraveling much before 500 years ago. As we step in the heels of the late Middle Ages or the late medieval period in Europe, the so-called Age of Discovery begins. European global expansion is underway. The transatlantic voyages of Christopher Columbus are underway. Right, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Right, movements in the European Christianity are had been occurring for quite some time, and so there's reform that happens way before. before Before Luther. You have to understand this. There is reform that is going on before Luther. You have, going on in the 12th century, the Waldensian evangelical church that was founded by Peter Waldo, who decried the heresies of Roman papalism in Europe. In the 1300s, you got Peter, the Czech Christian spiritual leader in Bohemia, who's trailblazing a Bohemian reformation against the militarized and institutionalized Roman hegemony. In the late 1300s, there's a seminary professor in Oxford, John Wycliffe. Look at that beard. It's sweet. And he sought to bring reform to the politicized European churches, taking aim at the so-called Bishop of Rome, who by this time was claiming to be the head of Jesus' universal church on earth, conveniently located in Rome, mind you, a church with her own military and massive amounts of political power and corruption fighting to wield that power. Rome had a history of dueling popes, what we call anti There's periods in history where I'm the pope, I'm the pope, will the real pope please stand up? We Inquiring minds want to know, I want to know. They're fighting for position and power. And they're using that power for financial and even sexual gains. Yes, the history of popes and sexual promiscuity and perversions is dark. Meanwhile, the powers of the Roman state church is fueling colonization and slavery in in the name of exploration. You have up there, I don't know if you can see this, but scholars note the five major countries that dominated slavery and the slave trade in the New World were either Catholic or still retained strong Catholic influences, including Spain, Portugal, France, England, and the Netherlands. Many popes go down in print arguing for slavery and colonization. Suffice it to say, the so called Church of Europe, particularly those who uh, tie politically to the Roman headquarters, was thoroughly crooked and bankrupt. And the Lord raised up men like Waldo and Wycliffe to bring reform. Wycliffe wrote and lectured and labored. A movement began known as the Lollards who began to influence and make change preaching word and gospel. Among them would rise up a man named John Huss. And John Huss follows on the heels of these Lollards. Hus was a Bohemian. He was born in, this, in the town of Husinec, which is called Goose Town. This is going to be significant in a moment. So he hails from Goose Town. Hence his surname Hus means goose. At an early age he traveled to the imperial city of Prague to work and he studied there, later rising to prominence as a scholar. Like Wycliffe, he called out the corrupt European church and he started a movement known as the Hussites. The politicized Roman state church was so threatened by Huss that they publicly executed him and the papal Called him to publicly recant or die at the stake, and he said, This God is my witness in the same truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, drawing upon the saints and positions of the holy doctors. I am ready to die today. What? They stripped him naked, they bound him in ropes, they chained his neck to a wood post, surrounded in dry straw, and he was lit on fire. The historical accounts describe him in prayer as they humiliated, tortured, and executed him. Along with prayer, Huss offered a prophecy. Uh, the oral histories of this time record that the executioner was about to light the fire on him, and he, the executioner, said, Now we're going to cook the goose. Recall Huss, Bohemian, Goose Town, right? Okay, and to this, Huss says, You are now going to burn a goose, but in a century, you'll have a swan that you can neither roast nor boil. Onto the stage and the prophetic fulfillment comes Martin Luther, a university student and a monk. He was born in Eisenbahn, Saxony, which was then a part of the Holy Roman Empire. To cut things short, I cut all my slides. I was in Germany this year. I wanted to geek out and show you guys stuff. But anyway, he was baptized on the second day of his birth in the Roman Catholic Church. So that was his family church, that's what he knew. Uh, that that 's you know what Mom and Pops raised him in. He went on to become a monk in his studies. Luther received a bachelor 's degree in biblical studies. He was awarded a doctorate in theology by the theological facu- faculty of the University of Wittenberg. He taught during his teaching and as he was teaching and translating the Bible, the gospel became clear. He began to see the gospel all over the place. His first uh, published thing is this piece that you're looking at right here in 1517, The Disputation Against Scholastic Theology. Most people don't know about this piece, but this was his, his first 95 theses. Well, the 95 theses that you all know and love, The Disputation on the Power of Indulgences, this would come next. This hit the press. This is what we commemorate in our 500s. We go back to this 95 theses. In my church, uh, we printed a bunch of these 95 theses uh, for the congregation, I got a couple if you want some, and I, I told everyone, go by Catholic Church on the way home and just post it, and run, you know, <laughs> and we'll start, we'll start a new reformation. Let's celebrate. So about 500 years ago, Luther sent this thesis, he in fact mailed it to the Archbishop of Mainz. he wasn't messing around, he's not just hanging things on church, it is for discourse, but he starts mailing it around. And um, and 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 people don't listen. They don't listen to what he has to say. And so the Gutenberg press comes out. That's wonderful timing. Huh. Sounds like there's a sovereign God in heaven orchestrating things. And so they start making copies of stuff. They start sending it around. Everybody starts getting it and reading it. He, his writings agitated the, the papalist. There's a bootleg preacher named Johann Tetzel. If, if TBN was out back then, he'd have a show on it. And Johann Tetzel was exploiting the poor and the ignorant, and he's running around talking about, look, look at this quote from Tetzel. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from Purgatory Springs, just like TBN. They're going to take your seed money and do stuff with it. He exploits the poor. He exploits the ignorant. Luther's message spreads through the Roman church, calling out Tetzel and all these dudes And it came to head in a historic Leibniz debate in 1519 where Luther threw down on the doctrines of the sovereignty of God, the fallen bound will of sinful man, God's grace, and the heirs of Rome. The outcome of this led Pope Leo in 1520 to issue a papal bull, excursi domine, which banned Luther's views from being preached or teached. And here's a copy of it. And you'll note to the side there, this is available on their website today. You can, you can still go on there on the papal encyclicals online and you can read these. No shame in the game. So, Luther responds with a paper entitled, Adversus Excrable Antichristi Bullum, Against the Excrable Bull of the Antichrist. And he wrote, Whoever wrote this bull, he's the Antichrist. I protest before God and our Lord Jesus and his angels and the whole world with my whole heart, and I dissent from this damnation of this bull that I curse and excrecate it as sacrilege and blasphemy of Christ tell us what you really think luther god's son and our lord this is a bit of a recantation o bull thou daughter o bulls he's talking about their daughters dang so luther follows up with a second response cuz he was so you know wound up he wrote a second one assertion of the articles wrongly condemned in the in the roman bull 1520, Luther published a series of books and tracts attacking the Pope and elaborating on his positions. The most inflammatory and consequential of these was one entitled, this one's my favorite, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. In this tract, Luther argued that the papacy was the kingdom of Babylon that had dragged the church into captivity just as the children of Israel had been exiled in Babylon centuries earlier. He exposed the unbiblical sacraments of Rome. Suffice it to say, he was fired up. And speaking of fire, on December the 10th, 1520, some 60 days after Luther received his official copy of the bull, he and his buddies got together, had a bonfire, and they burned it like the reforming ballers that they were. They said, we're just going to burn this stuff. So they had parties, and they started burning all the pope's stuff. And Luther is reported as saying, and I quote, because you have confounded the truth of God, today the Lord confounds you into the fire with you. The fires rage in December. Come January 1521, the Pope issued the Bull Deceit Romanum Pontificum. In English, it befits the Roman pontiff. Formerly, this is his excommunication. You just got served. You got fired by Luther, and we're going to come and get you now. We're going to kill you. So things are really getting heated. Roman, uh, The Emperor Charles uh, calls for the Diet." of worms. now diet uh, we're health-conscious Southern California people Um, Diet doesn't mean you're trying to lose some calories. A diet is a formal uh, deliberative assembly. So they get together. It's a court inquisition. They're going to try Luther. He stands before the Diet of Worms. They demand him to recant everything. He's got this famous line, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of scriptures or by clear reason, y'all can read it. i got to edit. So as a result of Luther's refusal to recant, the Diet of Worms issued the Edict of Worms. And basically they say, hey, you're a heretic. We're going to come and kill you. Um, Fast forward, I'm editing, uh, some of his homies kidnapped him, hit him in a castle so he wouldn't get killed. And while he was uh, in, in the castle and they had him kidnapped, he made good use of time and just started translating the Bible into the tongue of the people so that everyone could begin reading it. So we got the press, we can make copies, people can get Bibles, and the common man can see that Rome is Babylon. So the fires of the Reformation are spreading. Again, this began before Luther, as you saw, okay? And, and things are happening independent of him. In Zurich, you got the homie Zwingli doing all kind of stuff. He's a contemporary of Luther. In Scotland, Roman militaries were acting fools and John Knox raised up. Meanwhile, the Reformation in Geneva, you got the homie John Calvin, one of my favorites, a French lawyer turned theologian, don't mess with him, University of Paris, he gave a speech filled with allusions to uh, things reformed. King Francis, i got to say his name like that, Francis, no offense to Francis' is here, but he comes after him, tries to arrest him, he escapes from imprisonment, he flees to Basel, he's 26 years old when he writes the Institutes of Christian Religion. If, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask one of your pastors. It's a big old fat book. He wrote that at 26. Young people, get it together. Calvin wrote the Institutes at 26. I feel bad myself. What am I saying? He writes that bad boy at 26. So 3 years he's on the run in France and Switzerland, later with the help of of his friend William Pharrell, another reformer, they they revived Geneva so much so that people called it Protestant Rome. In England you got William Tyndale. He's an English scholar. He's rolling around translating the Bible in English, preaching the gospel. You know what they did to him? They strangled him to death, tied him to a piece of wood and burned him till he died. There were the Oxford martyrs, Latimer Ridley, Thomas Cramer, who were violently murtled, murdered by the so called church, who strangled them and burnt them at the stake in Oxford, England. In the 1550s, you got Bloody Mary. Oh, Bloody Mary! It's not a two-box song. It's a real historic figure. She is dark. She is crazy. She is killing Protestants, kids, women, hundreds and hundreds of them. The blood would not stop the Reformation. In the 1500s, we're reminded, we're reminded of something that an African saint, Tertullian, said a long time ago. And he wrote, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You see, persecution doesn't stop us. It doesn't stop the true church. It just makes us get agitated. And we rise up in power because we are the temple of the living God. And Christ is the head of his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Can I get an amen? Tertullian is offering here some historic irony, for you see Apologeticus was written ostensibly to the provincial governors of the Roman Empire who were killing Christians. And here's the irony, in the reformation Rome was still killing Christians, but now they were doing it in the name of Christ. The light of the gospel was too much. The Reformation was moving. There's not time. i got to edit. 25 minutes. Oh, my gosh. What was PJ thinking? So the so-called Reformation is celebrating a 500th anniversary this month. This anniversary, though, goes back way before. I need you to see that. And I'm talking to you about worship, and I'm showing you these ugly parts of the worship. And I'm showing you this specific era in Europe and this horrible, just dark, violent, bloodthirsty thing that was going on. But Luther is doing nothing new. The Reformers are doing nothing new. Meanwhile, you have to understand what's going on in Europe. Christianity is in the rest of the world, by the way. Hello let me say something here it wasn't just in the west christianity's in the in in the middle east it's in africa it's in asia as westerners we often hear we often hear about the west and europe and stuff like this there's not time for me to do all of this but suffice it to say i need you to hear and understand that christianity began in jerusalem this jewish missionary movement it spread to gentiles it spread in africa it spread in the near east Do you know that Christianity became the state religion of Armenia in 301? It became the state religion of Ethiopia in 325? It became the state religion of Georgia in 337? I could go on. That is to say that it became the state religion of places in the east and in the south well before it became a state religion in Europe. Christianity thrived in Iraq thrived in Iraq. There's traditions of martyrs in Iraq in the 100s. Between the 5th and the 14th centuries, in Iraq, you have a metropolitan province of the Assyrian Church of the East. In Iraq, you have Christianity thriving in Edessa. When you think of Iraq, do you think of revival? Well, let me tell you church history-wise. You got to know your history. Oh, the church was strong there. According to Eusebius in the 4th century, King Agbar was converted by Abadai, one of the 72 disciples of Jesus. Under the king, Christianity became the official religion of the kingdom. Eusebius writes that he was a missionary from Palestine who evangelized Mesopotamia. The church reached the Persian Empire in the first three centuries of Christian history. Christians did not only reach Persia, they reached uh, Asia, North Afghanistan. You got Afghanistan, Iran, everywhere. The church is in China. Historically, there's an edict of toleration in China in 638 that made Christianity protected. We have Archaeological finds and inscriptions, for example, the stone Nasfu in China, a black limestone monument that tells of a Christian mission in persian of a of a, of a person in one Alapen was his name. Uh, who was in the capital of the Tang dynasty in 635. The point is, Christianity is not a white man's religion. In Africa, the church was strong. In fact, in his scholarly text, The Early Church in Africa, Dr. John Mabidi outlines this, the message of Jesus penetrating Africa before it even reached Europe, so much so, Christian Africa is so old that it can be rightly described as an indigenous traditional African religion. The conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch described in the book of Acts, predates the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys in Europe by years. This is clear, and the historical documentation is there. Christianity was the dominant religion in North Africa, in Egypt. Uh, Egyptian and North African scholars are the early fathers of the church, claimant, origin, Tertullian, Athanasius. By year 300, Egypt had more than a million Christians. In the 6th century, Christianity spread to Nubian kingdoms, becoming the dominant religion. The Christian Nubian Kingdom survived for hundreds of years. you got the Egyptian church in the Sudan, the Ethiopian church that still exists today. So I'm I'm bringing up all of this so that you see apologetically when people say things like Christianity is a white man's religion, I'm sure you've heard that, Um, that's not the case. No, it spread all over Africa, Asia, all over the world. Now we're looking at Europe because we're talking about the Reformation, but this is just a corner, and really it's a perversion of what it was intended to be. But speaking of Africa, and speaking particularly of Ethiopia, and speaking about the Reformation, He's going to tie it together? Yeah, watch. It's worth noting that Luther was in contact with Africa. Did you know that? According to Dr. Davis Daniels, Professor of World Christianity at McCormick Theological Seminary, but Luther esteemed the Church of Ethiopia because he thought Ethiopia was the first nation in the history to convert to Christianity. Located in Africa beyond the orbit of the Roman Catholic Church, this was the first Christian kingdom. According to Luther, served as the older, wiser, black sibling to the white Christian uh, kingdoms of Europe. In a sense, the Church of Ethiopia was the dream for Luther, a true forerunner of Protestantism. As an ancient church with direct ties to the apostles, the Ethiopian church conferred legitimacy on Luther's emerging Protestant vision of the church outside the authority of the Roman Catholic papacy. Luther writes in his writings about meeting an Ethiopian church leader, Michael the deacon. They discussed doctrine and Luther noted that they were both in agreement on the heresies of Rome. They were both in agreement on what the gospel is. They were both in agreement on the text of scripture. He was in line in what we would call so-called Protestant doctrine. In 1538 and Luther's famous table talks. Luther recalled the visit of Michael the Deacon from Africa. Three years ago, there was an Ethiopian monk with us, with whom we had discussions through an interpreter. And having finished all of our articles, he said, "This is a good creed and is the faith." Presumably, the Ethiopian had reviewed and discussed with Luther all the doctrinal articles of the Augsburg Confession. Luther's fellow colleague Philip Melanchthon also wrote about this. Luther wrote about a letter, wrote him actually a letter of commendation, so that he. Could could go around in his travels in Europe and he'd have Luther would have his back. So what you see is that the reformation is start of something bigger. A global movement of the Holy Spirit of the living God moving through his missionary community, the people of Jesus, to bring people who are lost to himself. You know, there's a vicious cycle in church history. God moves, brings redemption, reformation comes, things start going good in one generation, and somehow it ends poorly in the next. You know what I'm talking about? One generation believes something, and then the next generation assumes it, And then, and then the next generation forgets it, and then the next denies it. For this reason and others, it is good for us to study this history, to see what it's all about. We're talking about worship and restoring pure worship. I showed you what worship was like in the early church. I gave you writings from the first, second, and third century from these Jewish contexts. So you see synagogues, churches, they get together, they pray, they worship, they have offerings, they do baptisms, they do all the stuff that we do. They preach the gospel. You saw all of that. Then we moved through history and we saw racism and politics coming in and corrupting the church. And again, I joke tongue-in-cheek, aren't we glad that we've gotten over that? No, we haven't. Don't you think this is a lingering problem for a reason? Because the devil is a liar, and he is on the move, and he's always trying to hijack God's people. At the heart of Luther's reformation of the church were his reforms of worship. We often talk about the doctrinal battles of the Reformation, papal notions of purgatory, prayers of the saints, worship of Mary, confessing sins of priests, transubstantiation. Oh, my gosh. We do all of that. But what we need to understand is these are important not for a theology test. They're important for worship. Roman worship was focused on the work of the people, liturgy and clergy. Roman worship was a gospel of man that uplifted a theology of glory that placed man at the center. It's all about what man does. It's all about you doing things and appeasing God. This is Roman paganism infiltrating the church. Luther uplifted in the face of the theology of glory, a theology of the cross, as he called it, wherein God is at the center. God is our object of worship. There is no mediation between God and man. It is Christ and Christ alone. So the centerpiece of our worship is to come before God's word uplift the text of scripture and show Christ supreme in the text and show how Christ brings us in the power of the spirit to the father that we would worship God in spirit and in truth as he is one God in three persons father son and spirit True worship is Trinitarian. The Reformers were all about this. True worship expresses itself in God's people gathering, just as we have this night, for fellowship, for prayer, for song, for teaching God's Word. True worship also changes your homes. Luther was all about engaging the home. He knew that homes were a part of worship, and so he wanted to see families gathering in the church. Martin and Catherine had six children and raised four orphans. They had a very huge and busy household. Luther is known as saying marriage is a better school for character than a monastery for it's here that your corners are rubbed off. Can I get an amen, married people? Luther saw the home as central for worship. Luther was big on home discipleship. He wrote a catechism for kids. He was big on making sure parents used it. He famously wrote, I'm afraid that schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the holy scriptures and engraving them in the heart of youth. Same problems that we have today. Would we listen to history? In the preface of Luther's small catechism, he wrote a scathing rebuke on the church and he called on the church, on men and moms to get with it. I'm not going to read it, there's not time. Luther's dining room table was a social and intellectual jam session where students would gather in the house and they would worship God. So worship was about the church gathering on Lord's Day, worship was about meeting in your homes daily and regularly for fellowship, for discussing theology for catechizing your children. Luther and the Reformers wanted to empower the youth. The Reformation was a youth movement. John Fox tells uh, one day of an exasperated Catholic scholar at dinner with Tyndale. And the exasperated Catholic said, we were better, we better be without God's law than, than the popes. And in response to this, Tyndale wrote his famous words, I defy the pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, ere many years, I'll cause a boy that drive a plow to know more of the scriptures than he does. The worship of the Reformation was focused on kids. I love I love seeing my kids in the room hearing me talk about this stuff. I love thinking about them raising up and walking all through the city of Los Angeles with the gospel and its banner raised high. The worship of the Reformation exposed the ignorance of a people without a book and their spiritual darkness. Bishop J.C. Ryle described the situation in the 1500s. He writes, The uh, immense majority of the clergy did little more than say masses and offer pretended sacrifices, repeat Latin prayers, and chant Latin hymns, which, of course, no one could understand, hear confessions, grant absolutions, give extreme unction, and take money to get dead people out of purgatory. Bishop Latimer observed, When the devil gets influence in the church, up go the candles, and down goes the preaching. I love that line. It is a joy to know the message of the gospel, that we herald the work of this triune God in calling us together. This is why we study the word. This is why we gather. This is why Luther wanted to see worship centered around the homes. This is why singing was so important to him. Luther was writing songs all the time. They're singing up in the house. Because singing is an expression of the heart wherein we ascribe value, going back to that original definition. Brothers and sisters, my last point, the Reformation is not over. The evils of Europe are still woven into things. I shared with you about anti-Semitism. You find that in the Reformers too, and it's quite sad. You see a lot of sloppy theology in the Reformers about God's people, Israel. Not to mention, you see all sorts of uh, worship that divorced itself from the things that are near and dear to the heart of Jesus. But the Reformers had this saying, and it's in front of you, behind me, ecclesia semper reformanda est, which is to say the church must always be reforming. Here's the thing about blind spots, you don't see them. Here's the thing about sin, you don't see it. Here's the thing about your bad theology, you don't know where it is, but it's there. So, we must constantly be reforming. God redeems us, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, He's in a constant process of reforming us so that we would see this. And here we are, a bunch of Protestants in Los Angeles, and I want to charge you all Ecclesia Semper Reformanda Est. Let's keep this thing going. Another Martin Luther, a modern Martin Luther, April 3rd, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr., sat frustrated in the musky confines of the Birmingham jail cell. And he took issue not so much with the hatred of the world, but the apathy of the church. King had just received a letter that was signed by eight concerned clergy that encouraged the Negro citizens of Birmingham to withdraw support from the nonviolent protest movement and denounce its untimeliness. In a tone dripping with patient indignation, King resounded, and I quote, in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. Now, continuing in the tradition of the Protestant Reformation, the church today must use every theological tool to dispose and to confront and to stand against the long-withstanding legacies that exist in society and claim them, and claim them in the power of the name above all names, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the head of his church and building a worshiping community that will ascribe worth to him and will gather on Lord's Day and sing songs and study his words, and will look around the room and we'll see, man, we couldn't have fabricated this thing. The Holy Spirit must have done it. Praise be to God. Let's keep reforming and worship him. Done.